All right, so this is the fourth part of Take My Wife, Please, Marital Relationships in the Biblical Text. Thank you. And unthank you. <laughs> and I have to tell you that when I initially planned this, what I was going to do tonight was Tamar. Okay? Now, we've discussed Tamar in any number of our other talks, so we're going to still touch on her, but I'm not going to... You can later. Um, I'm not going to spend an appreciable amount of time with her tonight. What we have here is an ostracon with writing. We will refer to it later, not this particular one, but it's to give you an idea. So this is my favorite piece of, one of my favorite pieces of art. It's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, those of us who come with me on our, pardon me? Right, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, please. Okay. Um, thank you. Yes, yeah, so those of us who come with me on the pre-tour the pre uh, at the Met in New York will try to get a chance to see this. It is what we call a sippus, and it is without question the finest sippus that they have. I'm going to show you a close-up of this center. What this is, is a cross between magic and medicine. Now, I, I touched on some of this last night for the three or four of you who were there last night. This is a cross between magic and medicine. What we have is the god Horus holding on to scorpions and things by their tails. Very important that you hold on to them by their tails because it, they can still get you. You see, and it's just like when you hold a serpent by its tail, it can still get you. So if you can hold the animal by the tail, what, whatever power you have is more powerful than the animal. When you hold it by its head, you're just controlling it by brute force. When you hold it by the tail, it's to show that you have greater power than it has. And so we have this, and then we have an awful lot of text you can see around here, and up and down here, and on the bottom, and on the sides. And what this is, right, is, among other things, spells for protecting against the bites of these poisonous animals. It's medicine to protect you from the bites of these animals. So if, in fact, you were bitten, you would go and, one assumes you could live long enough to get there, to the temple where this was put up, and this, these spells would protect you. How would they protect you? The priest would pour a liquid over it, the words and the potency of the words would be transferred into the liquid and then you would drink the liquid okay? and that would protect you. So you have spells and you also have the, a myth of your story of Horus and how he survived the god, how he survived attacks by these sorts of animals. 
So you have the spells and then you have a story where this sort of stuff was efficacious. These words become efficacious. You then pour the water or you have the water poured over it and then you drink it. This was put up in a temple. There are others from uh, throughout Egypt that are nowhere near as fine, nowhere near as pretty, and they were mostly found in home contexts because you would have one at, you could have one at home for its protective values because the chances of you being stung or bitten by home are much greater than you know, when you're going out to a temple and being able to get to a temple, etc. Right? But this is still the most impressive one that we have. Now, just keep that sort of concept in the back of your mind, how you can take the words from a document or from a document, not necessarily a piece of parchment, but this is a document, and pour liquid over it, and then the words become the power, right? It's the power of the words. Same thing with the execrations, but this way you're drinking it. That's the close-up. Okay, Book of Numbers. Chapter 5, 11 to 31. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, if any man's wife has gone astray and broken faith, broken faith with him, in that a man has had carnal relations with her unbeknownst to her husband, and she keeps secret the fact that she has defiled herself without being forced, and there is no witness against her, but a fit of jealousy comes over him, and he is wrought up about his wife who has defiled herself, or... If a fit of jealousy comes over one and he is wrought up about his wife, although she has not defiled herself. Okay, so what's the situation? The situation is a man's wife either has committed adultery or she hasn't. Regardless, he thinks that she has. A fit of jealousy has come over him and either she has had relations with a man not by force so we're not talking rape, we're talking consensual, or she hasn't. Now remember, adultery has to do with the, stat the marital status of the woman, right? Only the marital status of the woman. A single woman having sexual relations is never adultery. Adultery is only when a married woman has relations with a man who is not her husband. Okay? That's something that we need, because we don't use that definition today. Right now, in, in our modern parlance, the definition of adultery is if either partner is married, having relations with someone to whom they are not married. I got that right. Okay. The man shall bring his wife to the priest. And he shall bring an offering for her of one-tenth of an ephah of barley flour. No oil shall be poured on it. Who cares? Blah, 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 blah. It's a meal offering of remembrance that calls the wrongdoing. Fine. The priest shall bring her forward and have her stand before the Lord. There's a great deal of discussion as to what that means. Most frequently, it is understood to mean some sort of physical image of God, if you remember in one of our discussions, we talked about the teraphim, right? And what they are, and are they big, are they little, etc. right? So in some way, she is brought before the Lord. Um, the priest shall take sacral water in an earthen vessel, and taking some earth that is on the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall put it in the water. 
After he has made the woman stand before the Lord, the priest shall bear the woman's head and place upon her hands the meal offering of remembrance, which is a meal offering of jealousy. And in the priest's hands shall be the water of bitterness that induces the spell. Okay, this is an ordeal. The priest shall adjure the woman, saying to her, if no man has lain with you, if you have not gone astray in defilement while married to your husband, be immune from the harm of this water of bitterness that induces the spell. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and have defiled yourself, if a man other than your husband has had carnal relations with you, right? So it's an ordeal. It's very much like the Salem witch trials. If you're a witch, you float. If you are not a witch, you sink. You have to do something to prove your innocence. Okay? Or you know, there you have to die. But <laughs> slightly different here. Here the priest shall administer the curse of adjuration to the woman as the priest goes to say to the woman, may the Lord make you a curse and an imprecation among the people. As the Lord causes your thigh to sag and your belly to distend, may this water that induces the spell enter your body causing the belly to distend and the thigh to sag. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest shall put these curses down in writing and rub it off into the water. Right? Now you understand why I showed you the sippus. Right? And rub it off into the water of bitterness. He shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that induces the spell, so that the spell-inducing water may enter into her bringing on, to bring on the bitterness. Then the priest shall take from the woman's hand the meal offering of jealousy, elevate the meal offering before the Lord and present it on the altar. Fine. The priest shall scoop up the meal offering, blah, 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 blah. He shall make the woman drink the water. Once he has made her drink the water, if she has defiled herself by breaking faith with her husband, the spell-inducing water shall enter into her and bring on bitterness, so that her belly shall distend and her thigh shall sag, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is pure, she shall be unharmed and able to retain seed. This is the ritual in the case of jealousy, when a woman goes astray while married to her husband and defiles herself, or when a fit of jealousy comes over a man and he is wrought up over his wife, the woman shall be made to stand before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out all this ritual with her. The man shall be clear of guilt, but the woman shall suffer for her guilt. Okay. So here we have... Just a, this is a lakish letter. It's not, it, it's not this spell, but it's the same sort of thing. It's an astrakhan with writing on it, and this is the type of thing that he would then rub off, and it would be the spell. So what's going on here? What's important here, and why on earth am I bringing this to you? What's it about, Alfie? Okay. It's about a woman, or a marital couple, and the husband is jealous the husband thinks the wife has committed adultery. Why does he think this? There are no witnesses against her. When you take apart this pericope, when you take apart this part of text, it becomes evident that what's happening here is that the woman is pregnant and the man does not believe it's his. So a fit of jealousy has come over him. He thinks she has stepped out. It's not his child. If it's not his child and she has defiled herself, 
she drinks this curse and her thigh and her belly swell, distend, whatever. She has a miscarriage. She has a spontaneous abortion. If she has not defiled herself, if she has not stepped out, anybody remember what the text says? Here's our first quiz. He retains, she retains the seed. She keeps her pregnancy. She's able to retain the baby. So what's happening? This is, in effect, a 2,500-year-old paternity test, right? This is Murray Povich or Dr. Phil or whoever the heck these television people are, right, to show who the father is. What difference does it make? We need to know who the father is because we need to know which grave we're dealing with. We need to know what the lineage is, right? We've talked about this a lot in, um, in this series, it's frequently about the children, right? What's the problem with Sarah going into uh, Pharaoh's household, right? It's whether or not the Akara is going to wind up pregnant by Pharaoh. You have to have the right parents. And what has happened here <coughs> is that even if she has been fooling around, if she passes this test, that kid's not a bastard. If she passes the test, right, it's the paternity test. If, if she's able to retain seed, then the child is the husband's. And that's a huge thing, because as we keep saying, you need to have the lineage. Because if you don't have the lineage, everything goes screwy including the death rituals. You have to make sure that you're venerating or taking care of the proper people. Because if you're not taking care of the proper people, the proper people are being upset. And if the dead are upset, things don't go smoothly in this world. Things get all messed up. Okay, Deuteronomy. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her. I lost my place. He shall take her as his wife and perform the Levere's duty. The okay, so that's such a nice way of he shall get her pregnant. The first son that she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's widow, his brother's widow shall appear before the elders of the gate and declare, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name in Israel for his brother, he will not perform his duty of a levir. That's huge. The elder, I mean, that's shame, and I mean, it's the shame culture. The elders of the town shall then summon him and talk to him. If he insists, saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, <coughs> excuse me, spit in his face, and make this declaration. 
Thus shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and he shall go in Israel by the name of the family of the unsandaled one. I should have had another uh, quotation mark there, sorry. I mean, how huge is that? That's, that's really, really big. You don't want to go through life being, oh, that's the one who wouldn't do what he's supposed to do. That's the one that fell down on the job, and that becomes his name? Now, we only have two stories of leveret marriage in the Bible, right? The story of Judah and Tamar, right? Which we're going to touch again on, on, on Sunday because, you know, Lord knows it's important within this context. And the story of Ruth, right? Those are the two stories that we have of leveret marriage. And in neither story does leveret marriage work out the way it's supposed to. So we have the rule and we have no application. In each story, there is a leveret redemption, but in neither story is there a leveret redemption from the brother-in-law. Right? With Judah and Tamar, it's Judah. With Ruth, it is Boaz, right? who is not the closest redeeming kinsman. But what's important? It's clear within the law what's important. What's important is that there is the heir. What's important is that there is a name, in effect, an heir for that dead person. Remember, it was in our second um, installment of this, I was going to say troika, but it's not a troika. It's our forca. Um, <laughs> the... We looked at the Newsy documents, and we talked about the different types of adoption in Newsy. If you don't have an heir, you adopt somebody to be your heir. You don't leave it to charity because it's not about your stuff, right? It's about the lineage. So when Abraham says to God in Genesis 15, you know, I don't have any children, right? My steward, Eliezer, will be my heir. It's not who he's going to leave his donkeys to. Right? It's about who's going to take care of him and tend him and tend the future of him. And this all works out because when you've died, you still need the, your tending more specifically so your name is not blotted out, etc. And so your wife... right? steps in and has that first child for you. So as we said, we do not have this in the Bible, but we do in history actually have these shoes. How cool is that? Okay, this is from Eastern Europe. Actually, where in Eastern Europe, nobody's quite sure because Lord knows Eastern Europe is just this one amorphous thing until you know, relatively recent times. But this is a shoe for chalitza. It's a shoe for the ceremony because it's not done. We don't have this um, custom of marrying the brother-in-law, but we do have the custom of doing chalitza. Right, of taking off the shoe right, and spitting, etc. Because regardless of whether or not you're going to marry, your, bro your brother-in-law is going to marry you and have a 
so you can have a child that would be your husband's even though he's dead, however the pronouns work in that sentence. Right? Even though that's not gonna happen, you still have to, within the construct of Jewish law, follow out the laws. And it, it, it tells you on the top, this is, a, this is an etching from the 18th century and it's of Holland, um, but it doesn't, I mean it says it on the very top, it's, it's, it's not big enough. But as, you know, especially among the Svarting, this is practiced within this context. Okay, so this is of course uh, Judah deceived by Tamar, which is the story that we have of this in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 38, and I've discussed that in some of the talks of women on the Bible, because I've compared that with Eshet Potiphar, with Potiphar's wife, because they stand as polar opposites to one another, but everybody wasn't here for all of that. But what happens here is that Judah has three sons, and he marries off his eldest son, heir, to Tamar, an heir does what's displeasing to the Lord, whatever that is, it doesn't tell us what it is, and so God takes his life. So Judah marries Tamar off to his second son, Onan, so that there could be a name for heir. And Onan knows, it says, that his seed would not be counted for him. So every time he is with Tamar, he spills or wastes his seed, according to the text, and this displeases God, and so God takes his life as well. So now, as I like to say, Judah has two dead sons. What's the common denominator? Tamar. So she is, by definition, the black widow. So Judah sends Tamar home and saying, I'm not going to let her marry my third son, because he might die too. Time passes, lots of time passes in this story, and <coughs> Judah's wife dies, he goes up to sheep shear, and Tamar is told that your father-in-law is coming up to sheep shear, and she realizes she hasn't been given the third son as husband, and she needs the child. She's entitled to the child. She's entitled to become the mother of a child. She's entitled to have a child. She's entitled to have someone taking care of her as well. She's back living with her father. She's entitled not to be doing that. She dresses the harlot. She sits at the side of the road. Judah sees her and says, come on, let me sleep with you. And she says, what are you going to pay me? And he says, I didn't bring any money. I'm going to leave you a pledge. Okay? He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He goes home. She goes home. He tries to redeem his pledge. She's nowhere to be found. He says, okay, fine. You know, we're not going to keep looking for her because I'll become a laughing stock. Time goes on. Judah's told that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. She's pregnant by playing the whore. Now, she is because she is, in actuality, promised to his youngest son. And if she's having relations with anybody that's not the youngest son, then she's stepping out. But he's not giving her his youngest son. And Judah says, okay, let's burn her. And she comes down and from wherever she is, and she says, yep, I'm pregnant. 
And the man who owns these things, and he, she shows him what he left as pledge, that's whose baby it is. And he's like, okay. okay. And he says, and we discussed this last week, he says, she is more right than I. And then she has the twins, because it's about the lineage, because that's what the Leverett marriage is about. It's to make sure that you have the proper children. Now, the other place we have this story is in the book of Ruth. And I just love these miniatures. <coughs> they're in the Walters, obviously. And I had to crop them to fit, but there's, script on, there's, there's superscription and subscription here. And the inscription below the image reads, she went to Naomi with her wheat. Naomi looked at her and said to her that she should join with Boaz's young woman and that she should sleep at Boaz's feet. Ruth did so. Boaz noticed her and took her to bed, but he did not know her. Okay? And I, of course, think that that's hysterical because it's clear in the text that he, in fact, did know her, right? because he says the next day that he acquired her. But, of course, you can see in the image he's shaking his finger at her right? because this is, of course, how all Israelites dressed when they went to sleep. And he's going, no, 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 young woman, don't come near me. But, of course, the biblical text makes it very, very clear that, in fact, uh, they had relations uh, that night. And again, that's not the regular leveret process because Boaz is not the nearest redeeming kinsman. There is another redeeming kinsman who is closer to, to Ruth's dead husband in relationship, and she should be redeemed through him, but of course, she's not, right? Here the inscription above the image is, Boaz took off his shoe and knew Ruth and she became pregnant. <laughs> it's just so cute, right? Um, of course, this is again the uh, acting out of the chalitza, the acting out of the yibum, the, the leveret um, freeing of the curse. Now, the book of Ruth is very interesting in its entire context, because the book of Ruth is doing two things. One, it's setting up the lineage of King David. Right? And that's why it's so important for Ruth to have her redeemer be Boaz, rather than the closer redeeming kin. Now, you all have some idea of Ruth in your mind, don't you? A little bit? And when I, you think of Ruth, what's, what's the phrase that you think of? Right, whither thou goest, I shall go, right? Your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And you say it in your head in this nice, soft little way, don't you? And it's just so lovely of Ruth, right? Nod, if you agree, right? Okay, fine. It's all about tonation, people. Because if you look at the book of Ruth in a different tone, when Naomi, right, Naomi goes down to, there's a famine in the land, they go to Moab. Right? Only time in the Bible when there's a famine, they go to Moab. Usually, as I've said in any number of instances, when there's a famine in the land, they go to Egypt. Only time in the Bible, they go to Moab. There's a famine in the land, they go to Moab. Right? They marry Naomi, her husband, and the sons marry Moabite girls 
If you remember your Bible, people, are you allowed to play with the Moabites? No, most assuredly not marry them. Okay, but nonetheless they marry the Moabite women. And then the two sons, the husband dies and the two sons die. And now Naomi is a widow. She's a widow in Moab, she has no money. She has no nothing. She has nobody to protect her. She has nobody to feed her. She has nobody to care for her. And she's now going to go home as a poor woman to try to figure out what to do. And she says to her daughter-in-law, look, go home. You've got family. You've got parents. Go home. Even if I were young enough to have children, right, because she owes them the children, right, um, I... By the time I had, got, got home, got married, by the time I had them, you would be too old. It's better for you to go home. Okay? And they say, no, 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 it's okay, we'll go with you. And she says, no, really, go home. And one daughter-in-law says, okay, I'll be an obedient good girl and I'll go home. And Ruth says, no. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. It's all about tone. What Naomi needs, Ruth hanging on, like a lochen cup, okay? That's Akkadian. She cannot take care of herself. That's why she's going back. And this pyoiky little kid says, no, nah, I'm going with you. Uh-uh, you can't, I'm not going back to my parents. I don't want to be in their house. I'm going with you. No, 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 go home. No, 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 I'm with you. It's all about tonation. We've turned that around. We've turned it around. And we've made her into this great heroine. Now, there's a lot going on here. David and the Messiah, but more so David, comes from Ruth. And you're not allowed to play with the Moabites. Right? There's a famine in the land. You're supposed to go to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. They go to Moab. You're not allowed to marry Moabites. They marry Moabite. <coughs> Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, go home. She's not going home. She's going with you. And she gets back to a, what becomes Israel. She doesn't go to her redeeming kinsmen. She goes instead to Boaz, whichever one he is in the picture, because they all look like Jesus to me, um, <coughs> which, and Mother Superior, right? Um, they all, they, they, she goes to Boaz, right? And she goes to glean. Gleaning is when you pick up the corners of the stuff on the, of, on the corners of the field. You pick up the corners of the stuff on the corners, is what I was saying. Okay, on the field, fine. You don't need permission to glean. You just go and you glean, right? That's the whole idea is that you're poor. You don't have to ask for permission. She's like, oh, may I glean in your field, please? Right? And Boaz takes notice of her. She goes there. She flirts. She comes on to him. Naomi, as we said, says to her, okay, once he's had something to drink, go to him. And we discussed this the other night and the body are covered and uncovered, right? And lay down with him on the, the threshing floor and uncover his feet. He will tell you what to do. Now, for those of us who have been with me for a number of the lectures, what body part is feet? Is it a body part that both boys and girls have or is it a body part that only boys have? <laughs> only boys. So uncover his feet 
and he will tell you what to do. Okay? And you know that they, everybody understood it that way because if at this point they're saying he noticed her and he took her to bed but he did not know her, what do you, what do you think that means? Even the people who are making this miniature knew darn well that that's what the text says. But what do they want? They want you to not think that's what the text says. Me think the picture doth protest too much. Okay, so, fine. So on one level, you have the lineage of King David, and that's important. But on another level, what's even more interesting is the composition of the Book of Ruth. What do you have with a Moabitess being in the lineage of David? You're not allowed to play with them. You're not allowed to play with them. You're not allowed to marry them. You're not allowed to interact with them. So how do we get a Moabitess into David's lineage? The consensus of the scholarly opinion this is not my opinion, yay or nay. This is the consensus of the scholarly opinion that I am giving to you. I don't, I don't weigh in on it. Um, is that the book of Ruth is composed after the period of exile in Babylonia. During the period of exile, right, if you know, if you remember bits and pieces about the Bible and biblical history, in 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar and his army destroyed the first temple, and there's a major exile to Babylonia. And there are a couple of waves before that, but that's the major exile to Babylonia. Okay. The Israelites then stay in Babylonia, and Koresh, English, Cyrus the Great becomes the emperor of Persia, and he allows everybody from the Babylonian captivities to go back to their original countries. Right? And so you have the Cyrus's Edict of Return is in 539 and you have people going back. And that's historic. We know that from history because we have Cyrus's documents that allow peoples to go back to their original places and to worship their gods, their original gods. So we know that that happened. According to the Bible, when people were coming back, right, they had to prove lineage. They had to prove that they were part of the original settlement and that they were going back to their homes, that they were not, not actual physical homes, but they were going back to the land, that they were originally from the land, that they were not part of the Babylonian populace that was coming to to the Israelite population. And you could not bring intermarried families. You had to have paperwork. You had to have your documentation that showed your lineage. Because lineage is very important throughout all of this. Well, that didn't sit well with everyone. Lots of people didn't like that. Lots of people were like, we've been in Babylonia for so many years. Right? We've made our Jewish households there. Right? They can come with us back to the Holy Land. And now you get the book of Ruth. Now you get the story of Ruth, which says, if David, the most important king in Israel, 
the most important personage within the biblical lineup can come from the line of a Moabite who you're not allowed to intermarry with, how much more so can we bring our families with us back to the land? And the consensus of scholarly opinion is that the book of Ruth right, is purposefully putting together this family, which is not the standard family, which is not the standard Leverett family at all, that puts forward this family to make everything else stay as it should as they're returning back to the land. Okay, so um, we're up to our last few pictures here. This is a Shtar Chalitza. This is a document of release. It is relatively modern because again, you're still doing this, right? Now, what's really interesting to me is that I went and I checked and there no longer are they expecting or even allowing leveret marriages. They're also, because one wonders, in, in especially in the more orthodox communities and in the Haredi communities of the the mystical communities, the Hasidic communities, which are not orthodox, they're mystical, right? What happens with these sorts of things? And there are, especially the Sephardi communities, they do not allow leveret marriage because, right, the responsums say, you, in this day and age, you cannot be sure that a man has not had other children and you cannot be sure with artificial insemination that he wouldn't have other children. So the entire leveret marriage is considered now inappropriate. And I have written down the, you know, the YouTube addresses of a couple of 40, one's a 40 minute lecture, one's an hour and a half lecture on the legality of how you're not supposed to do this anymore. Okay? But you still put out these sorts of documents, right? just as you still had the relatively modern um, shoe. Now, someone yesterday, I don't remember if it was yesterday or on Tuesday, asked me about marriage. Was that somebody, I don't remember if the person's here. That was last week? Okay, it was last week and yesterday, whatever. It was in this room at one point, someone asked me about <coughs> marriage, which is why I thought about putting this whole lecture together this way. This is an elephantine papyri, because I had mentioned, remember I had mentioned the documents from Elephantini as our oldest marriage contract. This is an <coughs> elephantine papyri. It is from, um, the corpus of papyri that are in, in, at the Brooklyn, they're not on display. Um, so it all comes down to marriage, right? This four-part this four series that we have has been about marriage, take my wife please, aspects of marriage. It all comes down to marriage, but not marriage the way we think of marriage. Remember last week we were talking about the fact that there's very little communication in the marriages in the Bible. 
The marriages in the Bible aren't about relationship. The marriages in the Bible are about the offspring that the marriages produce and the legitimacy of those offspring. The relationships as described in the text most often concentrate or focus on continuity. And continuity is not only of family, but it's of community and it's of the central group. When you break down these relationships within the biblical text, right, in sort of the meta-analysis, it's about continuation. It's continuation of the, the line, it's continuation of the family, it's continuation of the tribe, and it keeps growing, right, from the, the, the continuation of the smallest to continuation of the kihila, of the larger congregation, right, of Israel, of the people, and how to keep it growing and going. And it's a somewhat fitting place to end our four-part series on marriage because the OS, no, the OCCSP, did I get all those letters right? <laughs> Is an amazing link in the chain of Jewish continuity and Jewish community. Thank you. Okay, people, questions? Yes, ma'am. Throw. Yeah, but so, one's biblical and one's Talmudic. Oh, but I'm wondering if a foot isn't really a foot. Well, if, okay. A foot. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Okay. You have a lot of, um, what, what's his name? Um, Yusuf of Enchantment, Bruno Bettelheim. Um, remember that? Yeah, everybody remembers that, right? And the whole, this whole Cinderella thing is backwards. It's right. It's a fur slipper in his, right? It's not a glass slipper in the original Cinderella. Um, it's a first slipper, hello. Okay, so it's all that reverse stuff going on there. Um, a foot can be a foot, as a cigar can be a cigar, okay? And now I don't want to get into sort of jokes about presidents and cigars and the like, haha. Okay, but it can, a foot can be a, can just be, you know, take off your, you know, Moses is told to take off his shoes, he's on holy ground. Right? Joshua is told to take off his shoes. I mean, that whole thing doesn't make any sense. But so sometimes that happens as well. And there is some sort of, sec I think, some sexuality with the sandal bit here. Um, and there are all sorts of, what's popping into my head, I think you've realized that I've got all these little flights of connections in my head. There are um, dream omens in Mesopotamia about what happens when a man in a dream sees himself ejaculating into a shoe. Okay, I mean, it's bizarre, totally bizarre. Um, but, but you have to remember, shoes aren't, shoes are sandals. Shoes aren't shoes until a much later period of time. That's a, you know, that's a 19th century shoe that I showed you, right? The chalitza sandal has to be, he's gonna be the sandal, the sandalless one. Right? It's, it's a sandal, and the sandals don't have sides. They're just flat bottoms, sometimes with, with a thong and sometimes with strapping. And we know that because we see pictures of them in the art. Okay, so, so we know that they don't look like shoes. Between, I know they're from two different periods, but throwing a shoe at a woman when you give her a gift, is that related to the left? I, 
don't, I, 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 it's Talmud, I don't, I don't, I don't, I only think, my knowledge of Talmud is, a, is of the things that I know, right? It's not, it's not encyclopedic. It's not like my knowledge of the, the Bible. Oh, I need to have a talk about it. Beautiful. beautiful. Very yes. Movie made in Israel. Yes. We don't usually like comments, but that one we like. Um, <laughs> and, the and the second quick comment, which you might like, is that I have a friend who went to the Chalitza ceremony. He was from Toldot Aharon. It was in 1989, and he told me that he was expected to marry his, his sister. Okay, I watched, I have watched three of these lectures from people that I don't really want to have those into lectures from. I've listened to three of them because of, you know, in, in preparing all of this. And that's what they have said. I have no okay, knowledge. So I know that the Sephardim here, right, um, have all sorts of ways of getting around it. Okay, but my quick question is, the sons, the twins of Tamar, the, yeah. their lineage, wasn't it somehow connected to King David's lineage? Oh, yes, right. Okay, it's all, it's all, and, and so is Rahab. It's wonderful because they also, it's not even, it's not so much that they're connected to, to David, right, but they're connected to the Messiah. And of course to Jesus, let's not forget that. Um, but it's all, it's all these, you know, odd relationships, right, that work through to that. And there are all sorts of theories on why that is. But what? How many generations, how many generations were there between Tamar's sons I don't know. I have you want. I, I mean, that's that, that's that's not even. I don't know. You know, that's those sort of counting. I don't do those sort of counting. Okay. Wait, wait. Call the question here. Okay. Suppose the younger brother for the lover of marriage is married. Yes, so. Well. In those days, maybe it didn't matter, but I was waiting for you to say that that was the reason why. It's not given as a reason in these talks. Well, so, in, in modern times. Yeah, maybe. exactly, it's not. So I don't get it. Well, because we don't, most societies don't allow polygamy, so. But it's not polygamy. You're just, all you're doing is supplying a child. Yeah. Okay, you, all you're doing is supplying <laughs> a child. It's adultery because. She's, and it's not adultery because because she's she you have to you have to provide her with a child. Right? Judah provides Tamar with a child, and he doesn't know her anymore. Right? That's it. There was the responsibility is to provide with a child. Now there's the other responsibility, which is taking care. And as I think I said, and I, I know I said it in this room, but I don't remember in which context. Right? I you know I know. People who are Mormon who have this, you know, in their grandparental generations, when you're coming across the country and the men are dying, you're marrying the women because you have to take care of them. Right? And that's not, you know, that that's not unusual because they have to be taken care of. Don't put your modern middle class morality onto other people. <laughs> So, um, as a biblicist, I don't know what do they call you. Biblicist. Okay, biblicist. Aren't you really irritated that Judaism, everything you're talking about, is patrilineal descent and the responsibility to have to for the father to be remembered, taken care of, and the the line. And Judaism changed the whole thing to matrilineal, so it blows everything up, doesn't it? That's the question. Doesn't Judaism, the biblical, the whole biblical. 
thing you'll be teaching us is Pat really knows it's very important who the dad is and the seed and taking care. But during but we don't, we don't take care of Jewish history, we, don't we change it. We, because we, what happens is, part a good part of this is for death cult. Right. right. A good part of this is for death cult. Because if you don't properly propitiate the dead, right. then the dead come back to bother you. Once we no longer deal with that, then it's not necessary. Right? Then it doesn't. Then it doesn't matter. So then, what departure. matters? It's not really a radical departure. It's a religious progression. Because once you're actually believing in monotheism rather than henotheism, right? Henotheism being you will worship this god. Monotheism being there is only one God, right? Henotheism, you shall have no other gods before me, which means there are other gods. Micha mocha Elohim Adonai, right? Who is like you among the gods, right? Ein kamocha Elohim Adonai, there is none like you among the gods. I don't care how the heck it gets translated, right? But that once you get beyond that into there is one God, Right? There's a radical shift in theology and in everything. Once you get you know, once you get certain fixations, it's like, okay, for example, strange analogy, but I think it'll work. There is a recognition that the prohibition about cooking a calf in its mother's milk is a misread of the text, and that the text really should be do not cook a calf in his mother's fat. Right? Chalev and Chalav, same continental text, and it's a misread. And it makes much more sense that you don't cook veal in the fat of its mother, meaning killing both of them, rather than just the milk of it, which you know continues on. I'm way more upset about that because I'd much rather have, you know, a, you know, a, a chicken cacciatore or veal parmesan, right? Then I mean, I would I, I, a cheeseburger. Just look at when people eat cheeseburgers with blue cheese. It just looks so good. I'd much rather have that. This makes perfect sense to me, and I don't have a problem with it at all. It doesn't. It, it, it's. Once you get beyond that, beyond the death cult, then it becomes important. It is important who the, who the mother is, because the father doesn't matter as much anymore. Once you don't have to propitiate his grave, right? once you don't have to worry about the fact that your world is going to fall apart, because you're saying Kaddish for Joe, and you should be saying Kaddish for Jim, then it's more important that you know who the mother is, because that's the continuity. So it's the same thing, but the, the <coughs> emphasis has shifted. But just a following question. So nothing in the patrilineal or matrilineal approach to Judaism was about keeping pure, pure lineage. It was about the death cult. And well, which keep, which, okay, okay, there are many things that are about keeping pure lineage. So that, you know, the Akara, the barren wife, is a about pure lineage. It's that whoever else is impregnated, it's the, it's the offspring from that particular womb that is pure lineage. Right? There's plenty of, you know, um, Moses and, and Aaron being made siblings, right? 
keeps that 100% Levite, right, for the lineage of the priests. So there's a lot about lineage, right, which is different than the practicality of it. But I wonder if it goes back to the original understanding that the man provided everything. Yeah. And there was the, then they figured out, I don't know when in history, that the woman actually had the seed, you know. The, and then the, you, there's a change in the understanding. Okay, it, no, the change in understanding is way before that. The ovum is not discovered until Harvey, right? right. And so it, this is the well, change. They say the Talmud, they do a lot more than, you know. No, the Talmud, the, the, the sex laws in the Talmud are great. See, that's something about the Talmud I know. I know the sex laws. <laughs> But it's all, all, I mean, all, many of the sex laws in the Talmud, right, are because of the medical understanding of the time and how to aid, how to aid um, conception. So many of the rules that you so in, in, in the Talmud, it is, you know, a man is supposed to satisfy his wife before he himself is satisfied, right? We all were taught that when we were kids. It's the first one that you're taught when they want you to read Talmud. Um, and this one, you're a bunch of girls. The... <laughs> That's because it was an understanding in, within Greek medicine that a, a woman's climax aided in the planting of the seed, right? So it, it's, it, it, you can pull it apart that it is to aid in conception, right? The, the laws of Nida, right, of family or ritual purity, are not because the period is unclean and the woman is unclean. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, no. It's because then you have the time when she is most fertile and it aids in conception. Because having kids within the larger context right, is important for a host of reasons. Right? For, for individuals right? for, for, and for making society run and for making the kihila, the community run and work together. You wanted to say something about I wanted to ask you if uh, I understood, understood you correctly when you said the, that Israelites returning from Babylon had to have certain paperwork yeah. to show that the husband and wife were both Israelites? Yeah. Okay. The Book work? of Chronicles. I mean, Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about that. Did that work? Yeah. They, they actually. So if this kind of story of Ruth was uh, an. Uh, a counter to that kind of demand, the, uh, it would seem to me that that kind of law might work now in Israel, where we have the business mm -hmm. with the Russians needing to prove Judaism. Is there any chance that the rabbinate there would go back to this? Is kind there of any law? chance of the rabbinate in Israel doing something? Oh. Right. <laughs> this wasn't a class on magic. <laughs>
girl child goes to her husband's family. Right? You see, that we're not clear on that. We're not clear on that. Sometimes the sometimes the girl child goes to the husband's family, but, but it's not necessary. We we don't. We have to remember that we don't know what happens in reality. Okay. And then the, the other issue is, is that there has to be proper prayers to the proper people at the time of death, and also the uh, the status as, as either a Kohen. Right, but and that's and that's later. The status of the the the, the status of the Kohen, uh, Levite, and Israel are later. And remember, by the time we get into the to the redacted biblical text, the whatever death cult there was gets whitewashed out, right? But we know that there had to be something because we have evidence of it in things as simple as those silver amulets that we have, right? Which we find in a death context. We find many things in a death context. We also have all sorts of Talmudic discussions about things about the dead and what happens with the dead. So one of the reasons, a simple thing that just popped into my head, you say the period of mourning is, is 12 months, right? But you say the period of mourning is 12 months. You say Kaddish, for 11 months. But the period of mourning is 12 months. You say Kaddish for 11 months. And it is discussed in the Talmud that the reason that you do that is because that's the amount of time it takes to desiccate and disarticulate a body so that you would on the, at the 11th month, so there's still one month left of mourning, have a uh, family gathering at the ossuarium to move the bo the bones right from where they were laid out to desiccate, right? And the reason that you only say kaddish, at least one of the reasons purported that you say kaddish only for eleven months, is that no matter how bad the soul was, the pain of disarticulation, right, is compensated for in the travel to Gehenna. Okay? So there's still a death cult, whatever the heck it is, even though we don't recognize it as such. Right? But by the time the text, the biblical text is written, right, it's written with the idea of the you know, universal oneness that we're going only toward God and we're not, nothing else is kosher, so the things get sort of uh, rubbed out to some extent within the text. The text isn't going to say you have to have a child so that they can propitiate the proper grave. They just hints at it throughout the text. Okay, so in this establishment of the lineage, is, is the male child? The yes. We don't have. We don't know anything about the female child. It doesn't say anything. So just to wrap it up, um, ironically, my daughter Clara was saying in her class at TBT, they read this crazy story from the Bible where if a woman is it maybe had an affair, she has to drink this water, and if she and if she's guilty, she blows up. So that's <laughs> I will tell you though that that is the way they teach it. I will tell you though that they can just read the reform uh, women's commentary on the Bible and read what I've written on it, and then they don't have to teach it that way. So I will have to re-educate my daughter, and I hope you all enjoyed um, uh, this four-part series and looking at biblical text in its context and maybe getting a little different understanding as to 
maybe what was going on back then. So we hope to see you uh, tomorrow night at University Synagogue. Three more programs. Closing is on Sunday. And have a great evening. Thank you.